Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Paul Renfro. I am an assistant professor of history at Florida State University and the author of Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State, which was published last year by Oxford University Press. And I'm joined by Michal Raz. I'm a professor of history and medicine at the University of Rochester and the Strong Memorial Hospital. Uh, and like Paul, I am interested in the uh, history of our child welfare. And I'm delighted to have you here, Paul, today to talk about how we started fearing so much for our kids and when did we really start worrying about you know stranger coming out and hurting our children so thanks so much for coming out to answer some questions today thank you for having me i really appreciate it what a striking title how did you get interested in talking about stranger danger So when I arrived at the University of Iowa to do my doctorate in history, I learned about uh, these cases of missing young girls in part of Iowa with which I was unfamiliar, but I became interested in how Iowans were discussing those cases and how they were linking those cases to earlier paperboy disappearances that occurred in the early to mid 1980s. And I was really struck by some of the features of the language that these folks were using to describe those cases, talking about um, innocence, talking about the fact that Iowa and the Midwest more generally should be exempt from these sorts of cases. And so I began investigating those two cases um, that occurred earlier, the Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin cases, and the, the milk carton campaign that grew from those cases. And that became a chapter in the book. Uh, Well, first the dissertation and then the book. I was interested in how a discourse concerning missing and exploited children developed in the late 1970s and early 1980s in the United States and how that intersected with larger societal fears, cultural fears concerning feminism, gay rights, um, you know, the sanctity and stability of the American family, crime, all these sorts of things, I think, converged in this issue of stranger danger, missing children, exploited children. And ultimately, I found in the dissertation in the book that this kind of new regime, this new means by which to kind of address threats to children and um, dangers concerning children, this emerged in this moment and has helped to Um, criminalize uh, more and more people and drawn tighter boundaries around the movements of children um, and deemed suspect um, a lot of folks who uh, operate or work in close proximity to children. Wow. So so it's a story about a lot of continuities, I guess, that you came and, and heard about some cases and it really reflected or resonated of earlier cases of these you, you mentioned the paperboy disappearances. Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
Sure. So the first such case happened in 1982 uh, with Johnny Gosh, who was a paperboy for the Des Moines Register in West Des Moines. And he vanished in the early morning hours of uh, Labor Day Sunday uh, or the Sunday of Labor Day weekend in 1982. And yeah, a lot of the features that, that I was just talking about kind of emerged from that, right? A lot of the, the sorts of themes um, concerning the fact that some sort of dark menace had descended upon a quaint community, a kind of, um, uh, you know, a family oriented community in West Des Moines, which was a fairly and remains a fairly affluent suburb of Des Moines. Um, obviously, there's a, a racial dimension to this. Uh, there's this idea that this is kind of um, a white space, um, and it very much was a white space, uh, and to some extent remains a white space. Um, and for that reason, you know, a lot of folks who were discussing the case um, ruminated on the fact that this this kind of metaphor of, of dark threat kind of looming, um, that was something that they m most certainly emphasized, right, in in this moment. And these themes were kind of um, only extended and um, bolstered in 1984 when a nearly identical case happened in um, another part of Des Moines and Eugene Wade Martin, who was another young boy, another paper boy for the Des Moines Register, he vanished um, in August of 1984. And this just kind of confirmed for a lot of folks that uh, this new threat had, uh, and, and they were most certainly kind of understanding this or framing it as a new sort of concern. And a lot of folks kind of um, tied this to the developments of the 1970s and 1960s, or at least the developments as they imagined them. So, um, you know, the kind of liberationism gone awry, you know, folks were now sort of acting on all these impulses that previously had been constrained and, and checked by, you know, um, genteel society. These things were now um, out in the open and, and folks were acting on these uh, really nefarious sort of um, desires. And so this, this fear of, of homosexuality, of, um, of uh, you know, civil rights kind of gone awry, um, you know, this all converged in, in the figure of Eugene Martin and before that Johnny Gosh and, and led to these responses that I think demonstrated a lot of that anxiety or, or really kind of uh, spoke to a lot of that anxiety. So the milk carton campaign, for instance, is I think a great example of that. Um, you know, this is um, a, a text or a, a product that speaks to a lot of the themes, a lot of the ideas that a lot of these folks held dear, the, you know, idea of uh, the dairy, the, the, the pastoral environment, um, the family, right? So, you know, uh, Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin were some of the, actually were the first two children featured on milk cartons. And, um, you know, that is, I think, a, a cultural product that has lived on and kind of speaks to, in our moments, um, but in that moment specifically, kind of fears of perils facing children um, and specifically kind of um, rooted in the Midwest um, with those cases. And you really talk about a creation of what you term the child safety regime. Um, and it's really less about protecting children and more about, I don't know, um, creating fear or maybe selling products or maybe even political activism. What, what is this child safety regime and, and where did it come from? Is it still here today? 
I would say it most certainly is. Um, and I would say that it emerged from this moment of, um, of peril, of, of danger or perceived danger in the late 20th century. And it served as this sort of response to, to this idea that children were not necessarily uh, constrained in the ways that they should be. And this is a response in some ways to um, youth liberation, to children's rights, uh, to, the, to the notion that parents had kind of lost uh, control over their children. So the regime in this kind of broad sense is a way in which to reassert familial parental and kind of societal control over children. So in that sense, it's not, um, no, it isn't kind of uh, altruistic in that sense. It's not designed to, to protect kids, although it's often couched in those terms. But in the book, I talk about how the regime is uh, multifaceted. It does have this private sector, kind of business sector or for-profit sector component to it whether that is the milk carton campaign that I just mentioned, the, the, this effort by the private sector to intervene in these sorts of cases, to raise awareness about these sorts of cases, and to demonstrate corporate re social responsibility, essentially. Um, of course, you know, these are not efforts that require a great deal of kind of funding or sacrifice on the part of these entities, but nevertheless um, generate a great deal of visibility. And, you know, there's one... Uh, quote, I, this is something that was promoted by the federal government also by the Reagan administration. Um, and there's a, a quote uh, the, that one of uh, the Reagan administration officials used, uh, which is keeping children safe is good business, right? Um, basically ensuring that you have um, customers in, in the future, right? Uh, by ensuring their safety. Sorry, go ahead. or dental. I mean, you yeah. There is stuff, this is also about selling products, right? This is your, I think in chapter six, you talk about all the things that we can sell now that we've created a market, if I may say a captive market for parents who are being fed all these fears about their children and now they're buying products. Can you tell us a little bit about these products? Because they really blew my mind. Yeah. So there were, you mentioned these dental uh, implants that that some dentists offered, which could be used to track children, right, in the event uh, that they were kidnapped or in the event that they ran away. Um, child safety leashes and alarms that could alert child, uh, parents of, you know, a children kind of, a child leaving a certain um, area, right? Uh, yeah, this whole industry kind of emerges and, induces a lot of anxiety in folks like Benjamin Spock, um, who, who claim that these sorts of products actually only instill fear and are not really effective because again, they, um, they misplace or they uh, misdirect the, the very nature of the, the threat. So, you know, it should be noted, I think that stranger kidnapping is not really a very pervasive danger and nevertheless it became um, uh, very much the focus of a lot of child safety advocates in this moment and, and folks who thought that this was a really pervasive threat, you know, 50,000 children um, kidnapped by strangers in any given year was the statistic that was often deployed. Of course, there's it's no, wrong. it's very wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, most folks would say now today, it's probably 100 
around there. Um, and, and this was true in the 80s as well. But very few folks objected to these sorts of figures. And so that serves to kind of propel a lot of this anxiety. And yes, a lot of, um, you know, hucksters uh, capitalized on this. And so they recognize that there's this great deal of parental anxiety and there's this captive market, as you indicated, this opportunity to sell, um, whether it's, you know, your, your dental implants or uh, child safety insurance, right? Kidnapping insurance, all these different products. Um, and uh, much of this was facilitated or enabled by the federal government, specifically the, the Reagan administration. And I argue that it led to um, this broader kind of um, network of, of different products and practices, um, you know, some of which kind of contributed to this even larger kind of system that I call the, the child safety regime. And it's still visible today, whether you go into a Walmart store and see the, the kind of code Adam sticker on the door um, that indicates that there are these protocols in place should a child go missing in that retail space. Um, Amber Alert is, is very much related to this. Obviously, it appears on your smartphone. Um, and, and so there are these private vendors or private entities that prop up this, this larger kind of system, um, you know, and of course, the news media is very much invested in kind of propagating these sorts of images um, and, and perpetuating these stories concerning endangered childhood. So that, that kind of for-profit or, or business segment of the child safety regime is, is yes, a very important but uh, segment of that larger system, but um, just one part. Yeah, you really tie together kind of the politics here that, you know, politicians capitalized over this opportunity to show how pro-child or pro-safety they are. And certainly industries did the same. And of course, people who are making a buck off this. But I think underpinning this is the question you ask is, which children are worthy of protection mm -hmm. uh, and which children count? And of course, when you talk about that in our culture and society, it always comes down to race and class uh, and particularly in race. And you talk a little bit about these visions of child innocence and who gets to enjoy this uh, presumption or idea that they're an innocent child. And I think that's chapter two in your book when you talk about, you know, the counterpoint to what does it look like when a child is hurt or um, abducted and this child isn't white. And can you tell us a little bit about the other part of this story, how this maps onto racial categories uh, and really um, demonstrates uh, what our society's view of children of color is? Yeah, and I think, of course, this has a really deep history, you know, that uh, concerning the fact that um, children of color have long been denied the perquisites of childhood and the perquisites of innocence, whether uh, you, you know, go back to, to slavery and to, to Jim Crow and the, the rise of the juvenile justice system um, in which children of color were deemed kind of insensate or, you know, imbecilic or what have you. And so I don't think that those sorts of notions went away. But I think in this context, in the late 20th century context, you have many of the same ideas kind of animating thought about endangered childhood. And yet yeah, in chapter two, I talk about the Atlanta youth abductions and murders um, in which took place from 1979 or so to 1981 or so. And this served, as you indicated, this um, kind of 
as a control group, right, right in the book, right, where um, these children were not similar, whether in terms of class or appearance, to Aton Pates, who went missing in Manhattan, or Johnny Yash and Eugene Martin, these two white children who were abducted while um, delivering papers in Des Moines, right? This is a group in Atlanta of approximately 30 African-American young people who went missing and were subsequently discovered deceased, all but one were um, was subsequently found. And these folks also came from some of the most impoverished neighborhoods in Atlanta. And this kind of, um, I think, challenged prevailing ideas about missing children and prevailing ideas about what sorts of dangers they face, not to say that um, these children were not uh, very much kind of uh, imperiled by, by certain things, but um, they most certainly weren't kind of um, included in the, the broader discourse, meaning, um, you know, it, for a time, some activists were gesturing to this case as as an illustration of um, these these larger kind of nefarious um, sexual threats that were confronting children. However, over time, uh, these children were not kind of situated within that same sort of group uh, or were understood as as different. And so part of the reason, even during the, the cases that they were viewed as distinct from um, Aton Pates or um, Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin was because they were out kind of running errands while they were abducted, you know, trying to make a buck while um, when they were kidnapped and, and subsequently slain. And this, for a lot of commentators, kind of demonstrated the, the rot at, at the core of the society in which they lived or the communities in which they lived. And this all kind of fed into this kind of Moynihan um, esque view of the African American family, of you know cult cultural pathologies that ostensibly sort of um, appeared in in those communities, and so the folks who were victimized there, the the larger community that was terrorized there, was not sort of uh, afforded the same luxuries, the same perquisites of, of innocence, of victimhood. And I think that illustrates quite clearly that notions of victimhood, notions of innocence, notions of childhood are shaped by broader understandings of um, who counts in a society and, and who is deserving of certain protections. And, you know, this, I think, is also demonstrated in subsequent developments concerning the further growth of the carceral state, whereby the very children, the very young people uh, who were victimized in Atlanta, um, these are the same sorts of children who are disproportionately ensnared in that machinery. And that's also a little bit what you're getting at, I think, in chapter five, when you talk about the juvenile justice system. And, and you know, on the one hand, we're protecting these innocent children. And then the moment we think their behavior is such that needs to be policed or regulated, they are no longer worthy of any protections. And, and the same politicians who are advocating for these, you know, extreme interventions of surveillance to keep our kids safe, the same kids get in trouble and then they're like, you know, lock them up, throw away the key and, uh, and kind of um, put them in, in adult court. So how do you make, how can we even make sense of this? I mean, I guess we can't because uh, it, it's not intellectually consistent, but how did you uh, tie together this chapter on juvenile justice with the rest of your uh, work? 
Right. So a lot of the juvenile justice um, policy that was being proposed in this period was kind of uh, conforming with this growing get tough ethos and served as this rejection of the sort of youth liberation and children's rights activism and policymaking that I mentioned a little earlier, uh, through which a lot of children, yeah, were um, kind of liberated in a sense, or they were enabled in in certain ways to escape, you know, abusive situations at, at home. They were afforded uh, certain rights. And for a lot of juvenile justice policymakers or kind of hardliners, uh, this was deeply problematic. And so they used the child safety crisis or um, the missing and exploited children issue to establish or kind of reaffirm this two-track system that I talk about in the, the chapter, um, the first of which kind of deals with runaways and with kind of incorrigible youth who are perhaps wayward, but who are not deemed threatening. And the second kind of deals with um, I, you know, the kind of precursor to the super predator, basically. So the, the issue was in, deployed to, to shore up uh, processes that were already sort of underway within the juvenile justice machinery, and yes, to, um, to more easily funnel certain youth and, and certain quote-unquote offenders uh, into the adult system. And so throughout the chapter, I talk a lot about, you know, the, the different sort of rhetorical tools that were used, and they all kind of centered on notions of, um, you know, familial um, depravity or, um, you know, fit the failure of certain communities. So that served to augment um, the, the ability of the state or bolster the ability of the state to incarcerate certain children and, and also to, to, um, to plug others into other features of the system, more rehabilitative uh, features or components of the system. And, and that's one way in which the, the child safety issue, the missing and exploited children issue was, um, was deployed or, or some would say kind of misused, right, in order to criminalize certain folks while uh, protecting others. I think you show really, and you make this argument that all these interventions, which are quite coercive, they've actually done nothing to improve the lives of American children, and they've exacted a heavy price. Uh, and this price is borne by, you know, queer communities, communities of color, uh, poor communities. And, you know, it's, I think it's not often easy for people to grasp that this is not about protecting children and that it doesn't actually protect children and that it has a cost. And, and maybe you can kind of just take a minute to, to really uh, explain why this exacts such a cost uh, on uh, different communities and, and why is this why is this bad, I guess, is the bottom line. And I think you, you show that in your entire book, but you know, share with us, why do you think these are not only not helpful, but also harmful policies? Yeah, and one thing I really wanted to emphasize in the book is how a lot of this discourse concerning endangered childhood led to the establishment of, or I should say the, the um, enlargement of the kind of sex offense legal regime to use uh, Judith Levine and, and um, Erica Miners' formulation 
um, there are these broad policies and uh, you know really sweeping policies that more or less transform a lot of folks who have been accused and convicted of certain sex offenses into non-entities, kind of non-beings uh, who more or less subject them to, to subject uh, to social death. So this is evidenced, I think, by the, the sex offender registry or the, the various registries um, that now list some 1 million people or about 900,000 people in the U.S. And all of that um, obscures the sources of harm, I argue, and I, I think I demonstrate in the book. Um, so it's not the strangers who pose the primary threat to children in terms of, of sexual assaults and, and other forms of abuse. It is families, family members, acquaintances, um, trusted members of, of certain institutions, whether it's the church or the, the, the temple or the synagogue or the school or what have you. So the sex offender registry kind of in its very construction, it by its by definition kind of obscures the nature of the harm by situating it outside of this idealized home. And that is most certainly harmful to children um, by enabling kind of um, facilitating other forms of abuse and more or less minimizing it uh, or insisting that that's not really the, the source. And the second way in which it hurts children is a lot of folks who are listed on sex offense registries or who are subject to this legal regime were minors when they uh, committed offenses that got them in this situation in the first place, something like 200,000 uh, folks who are in some way involved in this system were minors when they uh, committed these offenses or were uh, alleged to have committed these offenses. And that demonstrates, I think, a failure of, of society more so than anything else, right? This inability of society to kind of reckon with issues of, of sex and, um, and age and, and uh, childhood and, and limitations and, you know, consent uh, without turning to the criminal law, without turning to these really punitive and really harmful interventions that, as you indicated, have not really stopped sexual abuse, have not prevented people from being subject to these really horrible uh, things, right? Um, so, yeah, a different approach is, is necessary. And, and hopefully, uh, with this kind of historical uh, background, folks will be more inclined to, to realize um, that, yes, this doesn't work, a different approach is needed. Yeah, it's kind of a, a shocking idea or, or, or statistic to think that, you know, we want to protect children, and then we end up putting children on sex offenders list, and it, they have absolutely no way to get off or to have a normal life, can't rent an apartment, you know, can't live in certain areas, uh, and, and these are children. But it comes down again to this idea that you talk about, you know, which children are deserving of protection, which children are innocent, and then which children are really funneled down this uh, line of punitive intervention. Do you, um, so this is really a story about using children or ideas of protecting children in many ways to advance political goals and to, to uh, promote a reactionist uh, approach towards changes in society. Um, and I think we see this to this day that, you know, we talk about uh, our commitment to children, but when the, you know, the time comes and we're not protecting children in so many different ways, you know, in this pandemic, 
you know, all the bars were open and people were out um, infecting each other, but children couldn't go to school because the uh, rates of infection were so high. Uh, or sending children to school without adequate protections with some ideal of uh, family autonomy or values. I don't know if you see the connection, but if you'd like to kind of talk about some historical continuities in, in thinking about children as worthy of protection while an acting policies actually hurt them, uh, I think you, know, you could really see this going on to this day. Oh, absolutely. I think the pandemic has kind of revealed a lot of this. Um, this tendency that you're sort of pointing to, um, yeah, child protection is a very, very useful tool, uh, the very kind of banner um, of child protection, and nobody really wants to, it's such an unassailable sort of political goal, even though it's so nebulous, uh, that very few people want to quite clearly kind of articulate um, a different vision of child protection, right? Or one that challenges some of these assumptions concerning uh, the fact that children are um, politically, uh, or they lack a voice, right? Or they, they, they lack uh, agency. And thus, there must be measures taken uh, in order to kind of protect them from things of which, um, threats of which they're likely aware, right? And, and so, not taking kind of children seriously as subjects or as actors, right? Um, or I should say, yeah, as actors rather than just subjects or as a minoritized group, right? That That is something that most certainly drives our politics, right? And, and it's a sort of tension that I think you're getting at. Um, the, the very idea that children shape, you know, political discourse and a lot of policy and nevertheless are not involved in kind of making that policy and, and don't really have much of a say and are often kind of dismissed um, and, uh, and kind of uh, infantilized, obviously, right? So um, understood as, a, you know, Donald Trump was often kind of understood as a childlike figure or a toddler, right? And so that I think demonstrates just how minoritized a, a group children are, right? They're, they don't have a voice, they don't have uh, agency, even though many of them do have ideas and, and perhaps we could learn something from them, right? Rather than uh, the other way around. But um, yeah, to your kind of broader points, um, children are not immune from COVID-19 or you know, from, um, from the collateral effects of, of COVID-19, whether it's you know, poverty or, or hunger or all these other um, really troubling developments. And, and yet uh, there seems to be this assumption that the, the schools need to be open and, and no measures need to be kind of taken to protect children. Um, meanwhile, adults are often the ones who are endangering children in this, in this context, uh, whether it's through harmful policy or through, yes, just mingling with little kind of regard for uh, broader public health. Thankfully, I think there will be a vaccine for five to 12 year olds very soon. However, the very fact that they haven't had access to this, um, this you know, incredibly meaningful, incredibly important public health intervention, um, this, this has not inhibited folks from kind of living their lives as, um, as they've seen fit or as they've liked to. And this is, this is deeply uh, troubling. And nevertheless, it, it kind of illustrates the, some of the points that I think I'm making in the book. It's about paying lip service to child protection, but when you actually have to do something meaningful, which involves your own sacrifice to help protect children, it turns out that there's really no political will to do so.
Right, right. And those sorts of less salacious, less sensational issues concerning uh, access to healthcare, hunger, poverty, educational inequality, houselessness, these are all issues that confront millions of children every day in the United States. And yes, these aren't generally understood um, as issues that need to be addressed through kind of child protection efforts. Those efforts are focused elsewhere. That's, that's really fascinating. Thank you. Uh, and it really, a lot of it ties to your topic and your, your interest in, in presumptions of, you know, child innocence and, and sort of worthy of um, protection. And I think that really carries forward to your next project. Uh, you, you know, as we're wrapping up, do you want to talk just a little bit about your new project and how that um, continues this thread about thinking about children and, and their protection and innocence? Yeah, absolutely. So my next book is tentatively titled Young Blood, Ryan White and AIDS. It's under contract with the University of North Carolina Press. And it's all about Ryan White, um, the teenage AIDS activist who in the mid to late 1980s was understood as this kind of exceptional victim um, to use terms that, that folks were using at the time. Um, one who was more innocent um, than others who were typically associated with HIV and AIDS. Uh, at the time and even now. And so I'm interested in exploring how his hemophilia, how his youth, his race, his class, his perceived innocence shaped discourses uh, concerning HIV and AIDS and eventually led to um, his being memorialized or him being memorialized in the really landmark legislation um, the Ryan White's uh, Comprehensive AIDS Resources Emergency Act, which was passed in 1990. Um, and I think that that very kind of legislation, that bill um, or that law is illustrative in that it demonstrates that, you know, it wasn't a, a queer person or, uh, you know, someone who had been addicted to, to drugs or had used intravenous drugs who was memorialized with this legislation. It was a young white hemophiliac uh, from Indiana. So yeah, those those notions of, of innocence and, and victimhood and uh, difference, right? Um, I think those are very much at the, the core of this next book. And obviously that I think ties back to, to Stranger Danger as well. So um, those are things I'm most certainly interested in, in uh, dealing with. Yeah, that's fascinating. That sounds like a great book. And, and also the, the thing you kind of gesture towards what we haven't really said out loud is, is kind of geography. Uh, and, and, you know, you're thinking about the Midwest and, and you started with this and saying, you know, that these things don't happen here as if we all in our fantasies imagine all these terrible things happening, but we just assume they don't happen here. And I think that also has a lot of continuities about, you know, what is real American uh, and, and who counts, you know, in terms of citizenship and deservingness. And of course, you know, uh, Indiana maybe is realer than uh, than big cities and, and so on, so on, New York City. So I think that that's really fascinating. And, and it's an important contribution to, to also bring geography into the same uh, debate. Right. Yeah. The notion then and I think now was that this sort of thing didn't happen to, to Hoosiers, right, to folks in Indiana. And for that reason, I think his story resonated because it was so it, it was deemed so exceptional uh, and because he was such um, a, a kind of charming and, and handsome young man. And 
most certainly challenged people's conceptions of HIV AIDS, which was important. At the same time, it enabled folks to blame uh, other individuals for his misfortune. And so the idea was that um, folks in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco, they had infected um, Ryan White and others like him, and they were uh, they were not deserving of people like Ryan White were not deserving of blame. Meanwhile, these other folks were. So um, I think that, yeah, as you indicated, remains central to our politics. It, it has been for it has been central for quite some time. Um, the, the red states and the blue states, your uh, makers and your takers, uh, this kind of Manichaean understanding of, uh, of politics and, and deservingness and, and citizenship. That's really fascinating. Well, I really enjoyed reading your book and hearing about hearing you talk about it was really um, fascinating. I, I'm sure you know our, our listeners enjoyed this as much as I did. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today about your book, Stranger Danger, um, Family Values, Childhood and the American Commercial State. Uh, and I'll look forward to talking to your next books, uh, talking about your next book soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.